The scripture reading this evening will come from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. This can be found on page 886 in your Pewback Bible. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he may be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he whom baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Sorry, there we go. Good evening. Uh, I heard a story about a preacher that had just recently moved to a new congregation and he wanted to, you know, just kind of figure out, you know, what do the people here know? What do they not know? What's sort of their level of biblical understanding? And he thought, I will, I'll talk to some of the kids because that's a good way to figure out how much the parents know is I'll talk to some of the kids, see what they know. So he, he saw a bunch of elementary school age kids kind of playing in the foyer one afternoon after worship. And so he kind of got down on their level and he said, hey guys, how are you? He said, I just want to ask you guys, who, who, this is pretty easy, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And the kids didn't say anything. They just kind of looked at each other. They didn't say a word. And he said, guys, come on. This is easy. Who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And one of the kids spoke up and said, I don't know, but I didn't do it, right? <laughs> and so the preacher, he was pretty concerned by that. You know, he thought, well, I can't believe. I mean, that's, that's a pretty easy question. I thought they would know that. And so he, he said, you know, I'm going to use this as an example, and I'm going to talk to some of the deacons about this. So he gets the deacons together, and he said, guys, listen, I'm a little concerned. I talked to the kids. Here's what I asked them. I said, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And one of the kids said that he didn't do it. And the deacons kind of all looked at each other, and the priest said, well, what do, what do y'all think? And the deacons looked at each other. Finally, one of the deacons spoke up, and he said, well, listen, I've known these kids for a long time. If they said they didn't do it, then they didn't do it. <laughs> I really... I really have appreciated already very much your hospitality here and Katie and just getting to spend some time with you and seeing your love for Jesus and your love for each other. This really is a very remarkable congregation and I am very much looking forward to the next few days spending with you talking about Jesus. Might I suggest a general thought? certainly doesn't apply to everyone, but it certainly applied to me for much of my life. That when it comes to the story of Jesus in our mind, the story of Jesus in our heart, when it comes to the gospel that we believe, 
our story of Jesus is far too small and far too personal. Let me say that one more time. Our story about Jesus, the story that we think about Jesus, is far too small and far too much about me. That we tend to think about Jesus and we think about Jesus and what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. We think about the gospel story in terms of what it means for me. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It is very personal, isn't it? And it has all kinds of personal implications and personal applications. But the story of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is far too big, far too cosmic for us to reduce it to a story about personal salvation or private religion. Yes, The story of Jesus means my salvation and my forgiveness. And yes, the story of Jesus means your salvation and your forgiveness. Yes, when I was baptized into Jesus, my sins were washed away and I was forgiven and I became a child of His. Yes, and if you have been baptized, then that's true of you as well. But it's bigger than that. It's a story that's bigger than any one of us. And when you were baptized, if you have been baptized, when I was baptized, I was accepting an invitation into a story bigger than myself, whether I knew it or not. When you were baptized, yes, you were being forgiven, and yes, it was in that moment it was about you, but it's about the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob It's the story of Israel. It's a story that's been unfolding for thousands of years and you were being grafted into, to put it in Paul's words in Romans, you've been grafted into that story. You've been invited into that story. As we talked about this morning, no more can we just talk about God's Word in a written sense. See, when we talk about God's Word, I hope we're not just talking about the Bible but that we're talking about the, the Word who became, what? Flesh dwelt among us. The story came to life. And He has invited us into that story that's bigger than ourselves. And I think that we have to learn, whether, whether you're a Christian now or you're not yet a Christian, whether you're somebody who's just interested in knowing more about the story that you're a part of, and knowing more about the Jesus that you follow, or you're someone who's interested in sharing that story with others, I think we need to expand our story. We need to have in mind when we talk about Jesus, we need to have this big picture story in our mind, not just a Jesus died for you, you need to accept that, that kind of a story, but a story that says this is a huge, epic story that was unfolding for thousands, and still is unfolding that you are being invited into. So let me, let me give you a phrase. I know, I know it's late in the day and you know it's Sunday, but let me give you this phrase and just think about this for a second. And I'm going to explain this. We're going to unpack it. Multiple streams of Jewish expectations converge on Jesus. Okay, I know that's, I know that's a mouthful. But, but that's something I think we need to understand when we open up the Gospel of John or Matthew or Mark or Luke. When we open up the New Testament and we read about Jesus, we have to understand that the Jewish people, 
Jesus' people, as John says in the prologue, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That the Jewish people of Jesus' day had lots of different expectations. There were all kinds of streams of expectation that the people had during Jesus' day. For instance, they expected, because of the prophecies of Daniel 7, they expected a son of man. Somebody that would be a man, but who would be exalted to a divine status. To sit on the throne in heaven. Daniel 7 pictures this Son of Man ascending to the Father's throne or to sit with the Father on His throne. So there was an expectation about a Son of Man. There was an expectation of, as we talked about this morning, a Messiah, an Anointed One, a Son of David, a King, Isaiah chapter 61, kind of a Messiah. Uh, We talked about this morning as well, Deuteronomy chapter 18, a great prophet like Moses. Isaiah chapter 53 that we're going to think about in just a moment. They knew that some sort of suffering would lead to exaltation. So there was an expectation of suffering. There was also an expectation from prophets like Ezekiel of the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people and their hearts being changed. And so you had all of these sort of different streams of expectation. And different rabbis and teachers would say, okay, Here's what we need to expect. Here's what the future holds for us. It's going to be like this and this and this and this. And then somebody else would say, no, 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 it's not like that. It's going to be like this and this and this and this. So there were all of these different streams. And some of them had sort of touch points and connections. And, well, maybe there's a relation between the Son of Man and the Messiah. Or maybe there's a relation between the suffering and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe there's a relation between this and this. And so maybe there were some relations. But what I don't know that anyone expected was that the deliverance and the Spirit and the suffering and the Son of Man and the Messiah and the Prophet would all converge on one individual, and that's Jesus. So that's what I mean when I say multiple streams of Jewish expectation converge on Jesus. You see? How Jesus wasn't just the fulfillment of one expectation, but of tons of different expectations. And they all came together in the person of Jesus. But what I don't know that anybody really expected was that when they talked about Messiah, when they talked about the King, when they talked about the Deliverer, when they talked about the descendant of David, Nobody expected the descendant of David, nobody expected the Messiah, the King, to bring about deliverance by dying on a Roman cross. Did they? That's sort of a strange thing to think about, isn't it? Nobody expected all of these things to converge on one individual the way that it did. So if we're going to talk talk about who is Jesus and What does it mean when somebody like John the Baptist says about Jesus, here's this prophet John, and he sees Jesus walking by, and what does he say about him? He says, behold the, what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? Now again, it's really easy for us to just sort of reduce that and just bring it down and say, well, that just means Jesus died for my sins so that I can be forgiven, so that I can be saved. Jesus died for me. But let's sort of put it into context, shouldn't we? And understand it in light of this big picture. Understand it in light of some of the expectations and the promises that the people of God had at the time. So 
the people understood to some degree that there would be some suffering that would lead to an exalted status. And where they get that is from passages like Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So if you have your Bible, that's where we're going to be, Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, we have a, a tendency to simply read this and say, well, see, that's talking about Jesus. It, Jesus checked all the boxes right here, Isaiah 52 and 53, and that's talking about Jesus. And that's certainly true, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, and why that's true and how that's true. But let me give us sort of a challenge tonight. It's going to be my challenge to try to, try to explain it real well, and I, I doubt I'll explain it real well, but hopefully we can see what, what it's saying here. That it's not so much a prediction as it is a calling. Okay, look at, what I, look at what I mean when I say calling. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, many of the Jews of Jesus' day would have read that, and they would have read this entire passage and they would have said, well, when it's talking about my servant, it's not talking about one individual servant. It's not talking about the Messiah. It's talking about us collectively as Israel. We are the servant of God. And I get that. And I understand that, why they would say something like that. Because when you look at the rest of Isaiah, you look at passages like Isaiah 41 and verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Or Isaiah 49 and verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So a lot of the time when Isaiah is talking about my servant, or when God, rather, through Isaiah is talking about my servant, it's not necessarily just talking about one individual servant, but as Israel, as a collective people, you are my servant. And so when, when they would read Isaiah 52 and 53, and they would read that the servant... And they would say, well, that's all of us, right? That's us as a nation, us as a people. We're going to suffer. And after we've suffered for a while, they would read Isaiah chapter 53 as being the nations, the, the kings even of the nations. And the kings are shocked at what happens with the servant of God and said, oh, we, we thought you people, you servant, we thought you were suffering because you were wicked and bad and God was punishing you for all of your sins. But it turns out it was us. And it was us that were putting our sins on you and you were actually bearing our sins. And they would be so shocked and so surprised and so changed that the suffering of the servant would actually act as an atoning sacrifice to bring the people to God. And when you really read Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, you notice that we tend to focus on the word suffering. We, we usually label that the suffering servant, right? But it's not just about suffering. It's about the word servant. And what does a servant do? What kind of a thing does a good servant say to his master? I'll do whatever, whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. 
I'll be whoever you want me to be. I'll accomplish whatever you want me to accomplish. I will do it. I will go. I belong to you. I'm your servant. And that's exactly when we see this, this passage of Scripture, what God is saying, this is, this is my servant, and my servant is going to have that attitude of, I'll go, and I'll suffer, and I'll allow all of the sins and all of the, the pain and all of the rebellion to fall on, on me, and I will carry it, and I will bear it. In order to accomplish what? To bring the nation's to God. And that's what we read in chapter 53. They're astonished because they say it was for our sins. It was for our iniquities. It was because of what we've done. It was because of our rebellion. And you suffered so that we could be brought to God, so that we could be, the end of chapter 52, sprinkled. And they're shocked at what this faithful servant of God was willing to do. And so a lot of the Jewish people of Jesus' day would read that, and by the way, a lot of Jewish people today would read that, and they would say, this is us collectively. We're suffering. We're suffering. We're suffering. That's our, that's our lot. That's our calling. Our calling is to suffer. And then after we suffer for a while, then we'll be exalted. And they would focus on that exaltation. they say, we're going to suffer, but after our suffering, we're going to be exalted. And I would, I would challenge us to think it's not either or in this case. Either it's Israel or it's Jesus, the Messiah. It's actually kind of both. And yes, God called Israel to suffer on behalf of the nations, to bring the nations to him, to bring them back to him. But it, it wasn't them collectively who fulfilled their calling and their vocation. It was their representative. It was their king who stepped in in their place and who fulfilled their calling. And he became, in the place of the whole people, the suffering servant on behalf of them all. Again, think about David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath, it's a story about two people groups, right? The Philistines and the Israelites, and they go to war, and after that battle, one of the groups wins, right? Is it the Philistines or the Israelites? Which one? Israelites, right? The Israelites won. Yeah, the Philistines walk in, Israelites walk in, and, and one group wins, the Israelites, but is it because the entire Israelite army went into battle? No. Their representative went into battle. Not the representative, by the way, that you would have thought, but David, the son of Jesse, stepped in and walked into battle in place of his people, and he defeated the enemy, and he accomplished the mission. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. As the representative of Israel, he has stepped in and he has fulfilled Israel's job on their behalf. And what, what was their job? And it goes all the way back to the promises that God made to Abraham. God said to Abraham, through your seed, you will be a blessing to all nations. All nations will be blessed through your seed. Now, of course, when Abraham or any of the Israelites would think about that, they would think, through Abraham's seed. We're all Abraham's seed, right? We're all his descendants. We're all... And, and Paul would say, actually, actually, it was one seed. It was one who fulfilled Israel's job on their behalf. 
So yes, I, I think it's accurate to say Isaiah 53 is about the nation of Israel suffering on behalf of the people in order to bring the people to God, but it was one individual who actually ended up fulfilling that role and that vocation and that job. The one who said, I will go, Father, and I will suffer, and all of their iniquity can be laid on me. Look at, or look at chapter 53, verses 2 through 7. Let's see how we, this kind of works out just a little bit. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, again, you can think of that in both ways, can't you? And you can look at that and say, well, there's a sense in which that's true of Israel. That Israel was sort of this people group that came from nowhere. And they just shot up out of, out of nowhere, right? They, they were slaves taken out of Egypt, planted in Canaan, and they just sort of shot up out of nowhere. And, and there was really just nothing special about them. They weren't a spectacular people. To look at this group of runaway slaves that have been brought into Canaan, they just weren't anything spectacular. No beauty that we should desire him, for he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So it's like the other nations are looking at Israel and saying, man, we looked at you and we thought, there's just nothing to you. You're, you're not beautiful or majestic. You are a people who are despised and rejected, people of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But again, who ends up fulfilling this mission? It's Jesus. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him. So we thought, like we thought, we looked at him and we thought that he was suffering stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We looked at him and we said, God is striking him. And again, the Jewish people would read this passage and they'd say, yeah, I'm sure. It looks like God is mad at us, like we're God's worst enemies, but really, we're going to come out on top. But it's actually Jesus who says, send me, and I'll be the one to bear their griefs and to carry their sorrows the one that other people might look at. How did Jesus die? On a, on a cross. Now again, and we live in a totally different culture and like we have a cross like tied around our neck or we put it on our buildings or whatever. And so it's become a religious symbol. But in Jesus' day, a cross wasn't a religious symbol at all, was it? It would be, it'd be equal to maybe an electric chair or a lethal injection needle. This wasn't an honorable way to die. This is a way they put to death not only criminals, but the worst of the worst, particularly those that they felt, that Rome felt was a threat to their power and their empire. And so they put down these rebellious leaders through crucifixion. And Jesus comes and he allows all of that to fall on him. And people will look and say, see, that's what you get for being a bad guy. See, that's what you get for being rebellious. When it, in actuality, it wasn't him who was rebellious. It was everyone else. And that's what the nations are realizing as they look at the servant of God. They realize, they realize that we thought you were stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. Here's where we get that, the tie to what we're looking at in John. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The suffering servant says, I'll go. I'll suffer. I'll be the lamb. I'll allow myself to be mistreated and opposed, to be beaten, to be killed, so that I can accomplish your mission. Of what? Of bringing about the nation's forgiveness and blessing and restoration to you. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. My soul, don't think like disembodied spirit or something, but life. He poured out his life, his very essence, himself, to do what? To make an offering for guilt. It's them. It's them. It's all those people down there that deserve punishment. They're in rebellion. But I'll go, Lord. I'll go, Father. I'll be your servant. I'll allow myself to be stricken, smitten. I'll allow myself to be an offering, not for my guilt, but for theirs. And then it sort of shifts a little bit. But he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He won't just be a suffering servant. The Lord will restore him and exalt him, and he will see his offspring. Look at verse 12. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Israel probably felt like they were the Lamb of God who was taking on the sin of the world. They thought through their suffering that they would bring about their own exaltation. But the problem was that they were just as guilty as the nations. Right? They couldn't be an innocent Lamb of God to suffer for the nations, to bring the nations to God. Number one, they lost sight of that mission. Do you remember the story of Jonah? I think about Jonah all the time. God, God is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious and merciful. And Jonah knows that about God. And Jonah likes that about God. So long as God's mercy and grace and being slow to anger is applied to him and his people. But you tell me to go over there and talk to those Assyrians? Forget it. I don't want them having your grace. I don't want them having your mercy. I don't want them having your salvation. And that so often was exactly how the people of Israel felt. That's exactly how so many of us would have been had we been in the same shoes. But not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah, Jesus, the Word of God in flesh who does Israel's job 
who says, I will go where you send me to go. I will do what you want me to do. And Lord, I will, Father, I will accomplish what it is that you want me to accomplish. It wasn't Israel collectively who was willing to suffer for the sins of others. It wasn't Israel collectively who was willing to go silently like a lamb to the slaughter. It wasn't Israel collectively who was willing to make intercession for the transgressors or be a sacrificial lamb to restore the nations to God. It was Jesus who was willing to do all of those things. He was willing to be Israel's representative, to fulfill their calling, to bring the world back to God, to atone for the world's sins by suffering in their place. He was willing to march into battle like David, but instead of killing his enemy, he allowed his enemy to kill him. Instead of killing Goliath, in a sense, he was setting Goliath free. That's our Jesus, who took all of the promises, all of the blessings that were supposed to flow from God through the people of Israel out to the world, but they weren't flowing out to the world. It was broken, and people were broken. Not only the nations of the world, but even God's own people, Israel, it was all broken. And Jesus comes, and he fulfills that calling, that vocation, so that forgiveness and mercy and atonement could flow out to us, the nations, us. Jesus was willing to go, to be the servant who said, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to be a sacrificial lamb. I'm willing to go to the slaughter. I'm willing for all of their sin and all of their hate and all of their violence to fall on me so that I can accomplish your will. And what is your will? That they might be forgiven and might be brought home. Now, with that in mind, look at John 1, verse 29. The next day, John, the baptizer, who's baptizing people in preparation for the Messiah coming, right? He's getting the nation of Israel ready for their king. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin, not of Israel, not just of Israel, not just of the Jewish people, not just to reconcile us, not just to end our exile, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, what church? World. I will go. I will die. I will suffer. I will be smitten. I will be forsaken. I will die so that they can live. This is he of whom I said, after me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Can't you just see it? It's like when David showed up on the battlefield. Do you remember? The Valley of Elah and all of the soldiers, they're standing around and Goliath is standing down there in the, in the, in the valley and he's shouting down and making fun of them and saying, ah, you're weak, you're weak. You won't come out and fight me. And he's taunting the armies of God. And David shows up and he says, what? 
Let anybody go down there and dealing with this guy. I'll go. I'll be your representative. I'll stand in for you. And I will defeat the enemies who defy the living God. And that's exactly what the Lamb of God does. Not to go down into the valley to kill, but go down into the valley to be killed. That you and I, that the nations might live. Verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. Do you see how going back to the very beginning of tonight's lesson, that multiple streams of Jewish expectation converge on Jesus? John says this is the one through whom the Holy Spirit is going to come, just as Ezekiel promised. This is the Son of God, just like Psalm 2. This is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, Isaiah 53. So this is what I mean when I say that our story about Jesus is often too small and too personal. But that's not to say that it's not personal, because it is personal. And I think before we can make wider application, we have to make personal application. So let me ask you this first, and I like to have these moments of truth where we just kind of stop and we say, what do you believe? Where are you going? What will you do with this? What would you do daily if you really believed that Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who took away your sin? Do you believe that? That if you're in Jesus... He has suffered so that you can live and that you are forgiven, that your griefs and your iniquities and your sins have fallen on Him so that you can be free. Do you believe that? I often tell the story about my grandmother when I was elementary school age because I was in elementary school when she passed away. I was probably fourth or fifth grade. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, Wes, I don't know that anybody can ever know for sure whether or not they've been good enough to be saved. And I didn't know enough in the moment to say, Mama, that's wrong. John says, I've written these things to you. The reason I'm writing this book is so that you believe so that you put your trust in Jesus and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. I want you to know that you have eternal life in Jesus. Not, I want you to doubt and I want you to go through your whole life not knowing whether you've been good enough. What if we really embrace this truth? That if you belong to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've clothed yourself with Jesus in baptism and you're walking with Him, then you are forgiven. Not because you've been good enough, but because He was willing to be the servant that nobody else could be. He was willing to be the Lamb of God that nobody else would be or could be. Jesus stepped in and said, I will be the Lamb that will take away the sin of the world. What, what would we do? Well, one thing, we'd, we'd pray better, wouldn't we? 
we pray better with more gratitude and praise and thanksgiving that you have solved the problem that no one else would and no one else could except you. You were perfect. And in your perfection, you loved us with a self-giving love. You were faithful to the Father. You were faithful to your mission. And your mission was to bring us to your Father. But not only do we need to make this story personal, we need to see that it's so much more than personal. That if we're Christians, we've been invited into this mission. So that collectively, we become, what is it that Paul says all the time? That collectively the church is the what of Christ? The body of Christ. Collectively we become the servant of God. To go into the world and accomplish the mission of Jesus, which is what? Reconciling the world to God. To take this mission, this message about the Lamb of God who's died, to take away the sin of the world and who's been raised up so that we might have life, forgiveness and mercy and grace and blessings through Him. That we've become part of the story of Israel. And Jesus would say things like, listen, if you're a light, you don't light a light and put it under a bushel, right? You light it so that it can light up the whole house. And if salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out. Israel made the mistake of hiding the blessings that God was showering them with and not recognizing that they were a conduit for those blessings to flow out to the world. And now that we've been grafted into that story where Jew and Gentile alike in Jesus have this message and have this mission of bringing the world to God. What if that means we're uncomfortable? What if that means we suffer? What if that means people don't like us for talking about Jesus too much? Wouldn't it be easier if we just made the Jesus story a matter of personal religion, personal salvation, private religion? Just keep it to yourself. Believe whatever you want to believe. Pray whatever you want to pray. No, that's not the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is about how God is reconciling the world to himself through the Lamb of God. That's the message that we have to take to the world. That we've become a part of the servant of God. So that now we can say, as forgiven people, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll help accomplish what it is that you want me to accomplish. Because in Christ Jesus, we're not only forgiven, but we've been given purpose and meaning to help Jesus reconcile the world to his Father. But maybe there's somebody here tonight and you're not yet reconciled to the Father through Jesus and receive the blessings that he died to give you. And that when you do put on Jesus in baptism, you step into this story. And if you've not been baptized yet, I challenge you, let this be a moment of truth. What do you believe? Do you believe that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Then let him take away yours. And those of us that have been baptized, let's go out this week and let's live out this message and live out this mission because that's what he died to give us. If we can help you tonight, come forward as we stand and sing.